Welcome to the Vineyard Cleveland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For further information and other resources, please visit vineyardcleveland.org. So there's a specter of boredom that haunts all of humanity. Our limited lives are fenced in by repetition, right? We wake up, we eat, we work, we play, we sleep, we do it all over again the next day and the next day and the next day. Um, And this boredom can kind of wear on us. It builds some wear and tear. Sometimes people rage against the boredom and they go to extremes to try to escape it. They'll desperately flee from experience to experience, trying to outrun the monotonous sense of meaninglessness, right? They might be thrill-seeking adrenaline junkies, or they might be world travelers, just trying to go to every single place to find something new and exciting. Um, They might be wild partiers, right? They might go to musical concerts, or they might be shopaholics. Some people run away from the boredom of life by burying themselves in drugs and alcohol or burying themselves in work or burying themselves in sexual addictions, right? Most of us have had some sort of resigned tolerance of this boring life. We do things that we have to do, the work, the bills, etc., and then we hope to find a little bit of pleasure in our friends, our relationships, our hobbies, and then everything else, we just try to numb ourselves to it. We keep ourselves distracted. We binge shows on Netflix. We endlessly scroll on our phone or on, the, on the, our computers, right? We do anything to try to avoid that sense of boredom um, because a lot of times we live our life like the show Seinfeld, which I don't know if you guys have seen Seinfeld, but it's a show that's famous for being a show about nothing, right? Nothing happens in Seinfeld. Like from the beginning to the end, the first episode is the same as the last episode. The characters are just going through life. And there's no real growth. There's no real changes. There's no like life situations that are happening. It's just you get through the episode and then you're done. Um, and it's not just we modern Americans who feel like this, right? Because in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's a book of the Bible where Solomon does an experiment. King Solomon does an experiment where he tries all the different lifestyles that the richest, smartest, most powerful person in history could do at the time. And he goes through all these different things. He tries this kind of life, that kind of life, this kind of life. And after all of his experiments, he goes, everything's meaningless. And uh, to most of us Christians, we know that the Christian answer would be to say, ah, yes, everything is meaningless, but we have God. Our lives have meaning because of Jesus. And that's, that's true, right? But unfortunately, that does not seem to actually change the experience of most Christians. According to the Barna Research Group, seven out of 10 people have dropped out of church in the past decade. 20% say that it's because God is missing from the church. 35% say that church is not personally relevant to them. Um, 39% say church is not important because they can find God elsewhere. And uh, a whopping 46% say they just found church boring. Ah, yes, you say again, but those are the dropouts. I am here. I'm taken care of. But if you're anything like me, and I suspect that you are, at least a little bit, that you too might find your life to be a little bit too much like Seinfeld, 
right? Like you're just a log in the river of your day-to-day episodes, drifting along, dealing with whatever floats in your way, and desperately clutching to whatever glimpses of joy, entertainment, or purpose you can find. Because we buck against a meaningless life, right? Solomon in Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has put eternity in our hearts. So we know that we were meant for so much more, right? Like Belle from Beauty and the Beast, we think that there must be more than this provincial life. We sing, we want adventure in the great wide somewhere. Like, Moana thinks that it's the sea calling her. Neo thinks that he's going to find meaning in what he understands what the Matrix is, right? And I point out all these movies to say that this is not just like a Christian problem. This is like a, like a world problem. We all recognize that we were meant for more, right? We want, to, we want our lives to have purpose. We want to leave a legacy, to have an impact on the world, to have meaning in our day-to-day. We long for our existence to be an experience of something wonderful, magical, powerful, meaningful, because that's what we were made for, right? That's what Jesus died for. And more importantly, that's why Jesus was raised to life. Jesus says in 1010 that he came so that we may have life to the full, abundant life, meaningful life, real, eternal life. And that life is not a life of stagnation. It's not a Seinfeld series of nothingness, right? If you feel bored in life, it's because you are not living to the full extent of what God has called you to or for what God's purposes are for you. Being a Christian is more than just, it's about more than just having a relationship with Jesus, right? It is having a relationship with Jesus, but it's about more than that. When Jesus calls us, he doesn't say, hey, come hang out with me. He says, come follow me, right? Because Jesus is always on the move. He came to earth with a mission, And that mission wasn't for us to just hang out and be mildly and generically blessed from episode to episode of a ho-hum, overall meaningless life, right? Jesus's mission was to glorify his Father, was to show the immeasurable, incomparable, loving and merciful and righteous glory of God, not by by teaching bad people to be good, but by bringing dead people to life. Right? And then he's going to send those people that he brought to life into the world with the power and the authority of the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation, according to Romans 1.16, so that those formerly dead people who are now alive, you and I, could take part in the resurrection and partner with God by carrying that resurrection life into dead places. When Jesus is praying in John 17.18, on the very night that he's going to be arrested and start that final climax of his earthly life, he prays and he tells his father, as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. Do you guys get what that means? Do you understand how significant that is? What it means that Jesus is sending us into the world in the same way that God sent him into the world? It means that Jesus has given you his same mission, right? You are here to glorify the Father, to show the immeasurable, incomparable, loving and merciful and righteous glory of God, to proclaim the glory of the resurrection in everything that you do, everything that you say, everything that you are. That's why 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat or drink 
or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Now, it's easy to be kind of cynical in this day and age about doing everything for the glory of God, right? It sounds very boring and serious. Like if you're living for the glory of God, all you can do is play your harp and sing some hymns uh, or pray and read your Bible or say, mm, Lord, you know, you're so blessed. Like that kind of living for the glory of God. And, and that's all you can do. But there's two problems with that. One is that if you actually realize and recognize what you're doing, all of those things, the playing of harps and singing, the praying, reading your Bible, those are awesome. You are communicating with the God of the universe. So when you can grasp that, that brings a whole lot of life into those like, oh, boring, holy practices, right? And then two, God is so wonderfully glorious that in order to glorify him, it actually involves every single thing, every single good thing that we are able to do, right? Taking in the dazzling sunset or the dazzling beauty of a beach or a city, well, Psalm 19 says that you can be glorifying God by marveling at his works, right? You're spending a soul-warming time laughing or crying or cheering with good friends, well, you could be glorifying God who loves community by experiencing and expressing his love in and of the community, right? Because Jesus says in Matthew 18, 20, that he is in the middle of a people gathered in his name. When a husband and wife fall in love and share the sexual intimacy of their bedroom, they are a reflection of the spiritual union of Christ and his bride, the church. That's what Ephesians 5 says, right? When brave men and women test their courage and lay down their lives for something bigger than themselves, they reflect the glory of Christ laying down his life for his friends, becoming nothing so that he could glorify his Father and being lifted up over everything. When you've conquered a difficult task or completed some meaningful work, whether you work in music or art or plumbing or computers or business or whatever, you reflect the glory of God the Creator who revels in the glory of a job well done. The truth is, you are never more fully alive and more truly alive than when you are living for the glory of God. The writer Dane Ortland says, the formula to joy is not God and blank so much as it is God in blank. He says, true joy derives not from God and job, family, sex, friends, food, rest, driving, buying a home, reading a book, drinking coffee, but from God in these things. Every taste of beauty in this world, from the roar of waterfalls to the chatter of birds, to the richness of true friendship, to the ecstasy of sexual experience, is a drop from the ocean of divine beauty. Every pleasure is an arrow pointing back to him. Joy is from, and only finally in, God. And we know that God is the author of joy because every good and perfect gift comes from him, right? And on the night he was betrayed, when he's giving the disciples his final teachings and praying his final prayers before the cross, Jesus tells them three times that one of the goals of his mission was that their joy may be complete. In John 15, he says that we will bring his father glory when we bear much fruit by keeping his commands. And he says that he's telling us this. He's telling us to abide in his love and to keep his commands so that his joy may be in us and our joy may be full. In John 16, 24, Jesus says that when we pray in his name, that we will receive our prayers and our joy will be complete. 
In John 17, 13, Jesus prays for his disciples, the disciples he's about to send into the world like he was sent into the world. And he prays and he says, God, I'm praying this so that they might have my full joy in them, the full measure of my joy. And he says this because Jesus knows that he is calling us into a life of glorious purpose when he sends us into the world as the Father sent him into the world. In John 12, 44 through 46, Jesus says, Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into this world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. So Jesus says, the one who sees me is seeing the one who sent me. And then he turns around and says, I'm sending you in that same way. Which means that when people see you, they don't see you. They see Jesus for good or ill, right? You are his representative. You're his ambassador, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5. That means you have the privilege and the responsibility and the power and the authority of being Jesus in the world. So in John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world, right? That's what Jesus described himself. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but have, will have the light of life. So Jesus is the light of the world, which means, among other things, that his mission is to drive out the darkness in this world, the darkness of pain, of depression and death, the darkness of addiction and hopelessness and injustice and oppression, right? He drives away the darkness of self-centeredness and apathy and anxiety and greed. Jesus is the light of the world because he shows us what true reality is. He enables us to see the beauty and the worthiness and the goodness of the glory of God. The light, he's the light that allows us to know him, to know God. And John 17, 3 says that to know God is eternal life. Like this is real life. Meaningful life is to know God. That vibrant, powerful, magical, meaningful life that we crave, right? That's his mission. That's what the light of the world was sent here to do. And so what does Jesus, the light of the world, say about you, these people that he's sending, right? In Matthew 5, 14, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. So, so the light of the world has given you the authority and the mission and the meaning and the purpose because you are also the light of the world. His light is in you, right? Like God wants us to be alive. He wants us to see that he has purpose and meaning Wherever you are, wherever or whatever he's called you to be in this moment, at work, at home, with your family, with your friends, at the grocery store, at the restaurant, in the park, everywhere you go, Jesus is moving, right? Jesus is sending you like he was sent to bring light and life and hope to a dark and dead world. Like he wasn't playing when he said, you are the light of the world. He wasn't speaking lightly when he said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the ingredient that stops the decay of death from spreading in this world. You hold it back. You are the ingredient that adds flavor and makes the world come alive. It's you, but it's not because of you, right? It's not because of who you are specifically. It's because Jesus is in you and that salt and that light is going to come out of your life 
in whatever flavor that God has given you, right? He's put you and assigned you specifically where you are, which means that everything you do, every breath you take has purpose. Um, and this is not, again, not from ourselves, right? Because we do not proclaim ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So if all this is true, why do more of us not feel like we are living a life that meaningful? Right? Why do we not seem to experience this power of God on a daily basis? Why does life not look like the book of Acts with God filling his people with the Spirit and working miracles and people being saved left and right, transformation happening all around? Well, some people think that God just doesn't do that kind of stuff anymore, right? That that was for the Bible days and the establishing of the church, and that now in these days he doesn't do that. Um, that he no longer gets involved with gifts of the Spirit and miracles and the like. But it's extremely difficult, if not impossible, to make a biblical case for that because Hebrews 13.8 says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? And in John 14.12, he promised that whoever believes in him will do what he's been doing and even greater works than these, right? And then the entire New Testament discourse on prophecy, healing, speaking in tongues, miracles, and all that, in passages like 1 Corinthians 12-14 and Romans 12, it assumes that these gifts are just a part of the Christian's package, right? It assumes that this is a common, continuing part of the church. So why don't we experience it more? I don't know what anyone else's faith is like in here, but I think that one reason that I don't experience as much of God's glory and purpose in my life is because my faith, my faith is shaky. Um, all throughout the New Testament, faith is linked to experiencing the power of God. When the woman touches the edge of Jesus' cloak in Matthew 9, 22, when Jesus heals the ten lepers in Luke 17, 19, when Jesus heals the blind man by the road in Luke 18, 42, when he heals the centurion's servant in Matthew 8, 13, or the woman's daughter in Matthew 15, 28, he clearly says, your faith has healed you. And then when Jesus goes to his own hometown and the people scoff at him and offended at him, they're like, who's this carpenter's son coming in here trying to tell me how to live? Matthew 13, 58 says that he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. And it's difficult to fully capture how much cynicism and disbelief in spiritual matters has been sown into us by our culture and the world we live in, right? For me, it's been so bad that even when God has specifically used me, right? I'm praying, I feel like God's given me a word to share, of encouragement to share with someone. I'm like, I think I heard you, God. So I go and I share, hey, I feel like God wants me to tell you this. And the person's eyes get wide. And they're like, God just spoke the exact specific words through you that I needed to hear. Oh my gosh, the Lord is speaking. There are many times where I walk away being like, what really just happened there? That might have been like a horoscope kind of, ooh, that's me kind of thing. You know, like, I doubt it. And like, literally, I'm like, oh, God, you're calling me to speak. And God's like, yes, I am. And I'm like, but did you, though? <laughs> there has been a time where I prayed for someone who was limping and they had a sprained ankle. And then after we prayed, they were like, it feels better. And they walked away without a limp. 
And I was like, maybe their foot just fell asleep. I don't know about that, right? Like, why is that faithlessness so sewn into me that even when God is like, yeah, look, I just worked, I'm like, mm, but did you though? It's actually miraculous that God would ever use me with this, right? That he would ever use me with his obnoxiously deep levels of faithlessness. But the good news is that it's not the level of our faith that is important. It's the object of our faith, right? And if our faith is in the God who answers the heart cry of, I believe, help my unbelief, then it doesn't matter if our faith is even as tiny as a mustard seed. Because 2 Timothy 2.13 says that, if we are faithless, he will remain faithful because he cannot disown himself. Amen. So it's complicated, right? Because I still think that biblically, it seems that in some way, my lack of faith can keep me from experiencing the fullness of God's power moving in my life. But yet, on the other hand, God will always be true to himself. And if God is true to himself because he does not change, that means that he is still in the business of sending weak and flawed and faithless humans into the world filled with the power and message of resurrection life. Amen. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. So that's one reason why I think that um, we don't live that way. So we don't recognize who our faith is in. And we do shift our faith to ourselves. And thinks, I think sometimes I think I need to pray a certain way in order for this thing to work. Instead of trusting in God and in in God's goodness and in God's sovereignty as I pray, right? But I think that another reason that we don't experience God working as often as we think we should when we compare our lives to the Bible is that we don't live on mission like they were living on mission in the Bible, right? Jesus wants us to experience the full measure of his joy by calling us to sh share in his resurrection life and his resurrection mission but it's hard for me to share in his blessing, to walk in his blessings when I spend so much time on my couch watching Netflix or scrolling on my phone. Like Jesus is on the move and he's calling us to follow him. It's almost like as if his presence is like a cloud of rain, right? And we're under the cloud of rain and we're experiencing his blessings and his goodness. God's working through us, speaking to us. And then the cloud's like, all right, follow me. And it goes that way and we're like, I'm having a hard time seeing God now. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. I guess I'll just pull up my phone and just, all right. Right? But if I move with where God's moving, if I'm looking to see where that cloud is moving and being like, God, I want to be there, if I am actively searching for opportunities in all, in all, every day, I am much more likely to see that God is, in fact, moving in all those areas, right? There have been periods in my life where I have been more focused on spiritual growth and actively living in for God. And I have experienced prophecy and tongues and apparently healings. And sometimes I've woken up in the night and stuff, right? With uh, dreams to share with people or whatever. Uh, and there are also many people, some of whom I know personally, who have been living on mission and have participated in miracles and healings and salvations and all the wild things that come from the presence and power of God working with clear certainty in their lives. It's not un uncommon to hear those kind of same kind of Acts-style miraculous stories from missionaries overseas, right? And it shouldn't be that surprising to us because those people are often living in ways that expose their utter dependence on God instead of burying it under busyness and distraction and apathy like most of us are able to do, right? 
Um, because the way we live here in America, no matter where you are in the stratosphere of like wealth, America is one of the richest countries in the world that the world has ever seen in all of its history, which means we are capable of protecting and insulating ourselves from our awareness of God's, on our dependence on God more than anyone else in the history of the world, right? Because if you have enough money, you can keep yourself distracted. Back in the day, they had to work to live, right? Like if you didn't sow your crops, you just didn't eat. We can just relax, sit on my couch for hours, go out and grab a bite to eat. I don't feel like cooking. I'm going to go to the restaurant, right? And because of this, we are able to insulate ourselves from our awareness of our dependence on God. We are still just as dependent, but we can distract ourselves and blind ourselves to that. And if you do that, if you feed yourself, your soul on junk food, you're not going to have as much of an appetite for, for real food, for the feast of God's love and his presence, right? So what are we supposed to do about that? Should we pack our bags and go overseas to all become missionaries? Maybe. <laughs> I mean, it wouldn't be a bad thing to fill your life with adventure and the glorious purpose of bringing the message of the resurrection to people who don't have it, right? I mean, whatever you would give up would be nothing in comparison to what you would gain. Jesus said in Matthew 19, 29, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Some big promises. But it's also clear from the Bible that not all of us are called to go overseas, right? That that's not necessarily God's will for all of us to pack up our bags and move. Um, when you look at the letters of Paul and Peter, and even when you look at all the non-Paul sections of Acts, it's clear that God was working powerfully, and people were experiencing him mightily in their own homes, among their own neighborhoods and, and friends, right, in the professions. There's so much that God is inviting you into right where you are. For instance, you may never set foot outside of Ohio, but did you know that you can pray? And do you know that when you pray, God is letting you partner with him to reshape reality, right? Our prayers are powerful and they are important and they matter. Like when we pray, we are connecting with God and God, I don't understand all the nuances of it, but God says that when we pray, he will do things, which means that when you experience brokenness in your life or in a friend's life, when you see a hopeless situation, you have the power to call in the nuclear strike of God to work in that, in that situation, like, do you recognize that? I don't. Because if I did, I would pray way more often. And I would love it. And I would be so into it, right? But we have that power to shape reality by communicating with the God of the universe. Are we doing it? Deuteronomy 4, 7 says, Moses is talking and he says, What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them as the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray? Whenever we pray. Even when your prayers feel dry, God is near and God is pleased and you are walking towards the destiny that you were designed for. You may not ever be a Billy Graham. You may never start a movement or fill an auditorium. You may never even have your name in the newspaper. But did you know that you could read the Bible? Do you know that, God's, that the God of the universe speaks directly to you when you spend time with him in the word? 
Do you know that his, his, his word is living and active and that it changes you? It separates soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Do you know that you can become a different person? Not necessarily by like, oh, I'm reading this and because I read this word, but the spirit is doing stuff when you read. He's shaping reality with you. Um, Psalm 19 says that he has given you his word to revive your soul, to make you wise, to rejoice your heart, to enlighten your eyes. He uses his word to thoroughly equip us for every good work, according to 1 Timothy 3.17. God wants to use you right now, right? Do you know that you have friends and coworkers? That there are people that you will see that no other Christian may see, right? That there, you have relationships with those people that nobody else has. Like even if you have a friend group and all your Christians are around this one friend, your relationship with that person is different than someone else's relationship, which means that God has you specially assigned to be a part of this process of bringing resurrection life into these dark places, right? So your life has so much purpose and so much meaning. There's never a Seinfeld episode of your life. Um, Jesus has sent you into this world to be a light to the world, to bring resurrection to this world. But you can't do this on your own strength. You have to be looking to Jesus, right? You have to be spending time with him, abiding with him. Jesus says that if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can't do anything. So as I'm saying this, my goal, my heart is to rev us up, to get us excited, like, yeah, come on. We can do this. We, God has given us purpose and mission. Let's live it. But I don't want to get us into the trap of being like, all right, what do I got to do? I got to get on the grind, right? Because it's not about our strength. It's not about having faith in our effort or our skill or our wisdom, right? It's about looking and being like, God, if I'm following you, you are going to be moving me with purpose. You are going to be letting me enjoy you in all your things. I'm going to be able to watch the beautiful snow falling outside and be like, wow, God, good job. Glorifying you, right? Because it's not just about the change you can see. It's not, because that is a trap, I think, that gets us thinking about ourselves again. Like, God, I want to see something happen. That's, this has happened to me a lot, where I'm like, God, are you doing anything? Like, sorry, this is not in my notes, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, there, for a time, I was like a volunteer staff with a campus ministry, and we were trying to start Bible studies in these different dorms. And I was going to these dorms, and like we were knocking, and me and like one of the students were coming in, trying to like meet people and have conversations and like invite them to Bible study. And it was just, it felt so fruitless. We were going, and we were like, sometimes we wouldn't even be able to get into the dorm. Sometimes we would get there, and the one guy that we did have a relationship with, he would be like, oh, sorry, I'm like, I got to study, as he's playing Madden <laughs> on, on, the, on the Xbox. And just like, okay. And I'm like, God, what are you doing, right? Day in, day out, I'm like, what's the point of this? And one time I was wrestling with this, and <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 5, 7, I think it is, came up where it's like, we walk by faith, not by sight. And I was thinking, I wanted to see God working. But I had to walk by faith that God was doing something that was worthwhile, even though I didn't see it. Right? Because when we want to see the result, that is subtly trying to shift the glory to us. Like, I want to feel good about what God's doing here. 
But when we are truly living for God's glory, we can find it everywhere because everything points to the glory of God. Every good thing we do, every act of service, every suffering that we suffer, we can be like, God is glorified in this because God is still good. He's so good. And if I live my life in the faith that God is good, I'm going to be able to see his goodness everywhere I look, right? And so you have to watch how you fill your soul up and what you're filling your soul up with. Are you looking for God and something or are you looking for God in everything? Are you finding life and joy in your entertainments or possessions and relationships, reputation, successes or careers? In 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, Paul writes, command those who are rich in this present world, pause, that means all of us, right? Because like I was saying, compared to what, who Paul is writing to, like they couldn't even dream of the riches that we have, even like the poorest person here. Anyways, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So yes, go enjoy your sunsets. Enjoy your good food. Enjoy binging a show on Netflix. But as you're watching that, as you're thinking, as you're doing, as you're praying, as you're living, always think, my hope is not in this. There's more for me. Like, I would invite us to the experiment of before you go, like, I don't know, sometimes you have a hard day at work and you just want to veg out. Like, I just want to flop down, turn my brain off and whatever. It's easy to do that with, you know, entertainments. But I challenge myself, I'm challenging myself right now and us to stop and pause for a moment and be like, God, where is my rest? It's not in the TV. It's not on the couch. It's not in like a drink or whatever, Right? Sometimes God will be like, yeah, your rest is in me. Go enjoy that thing. Have fun, tiger, right? Sometimes he'll do that. Sometimes people are like, no, you need to pull away. You need to do something else. And so I invite you into that challenge because God, like you have a relationship with God and God is saying, Jesus is saying, follow me, right? Do what I'm doing. Look where I'm going and go, go that way. Put your hope in God because that is the only life that is truly life.